Welcome to Intro 1001 After the Lecture. I'm Hugh McSweeney, the General Committee Officer for the ANU International Relations Society, and today I'm joined by Associate Professor Matthew Sussex. He's a Senior Fellow at the ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, and it is my pleasure to talk to him today about updates in Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Hugh. So uh, to start off with, it's been quite a month in Ukraine. There's been uh, significant counter-offensives in key areas, and it's been kind of an embarrassment for the Russian military, at least in terms of reputation. How do you think that Ukraine has been able to achieve this? Well, look, um, partly it's tactical surprise that they've managed to achieve. For about uh, a month to six weeks, they telegraphed that the main counteroffensive was going to come out of uh, Kherson down in the southeast of Ukraine. And the Russians moved a fair bit of uh, material, troops, equipment and so forth to try and uh, put a blocking force in place to stop that. Um, now, what the Ukrainians actually did was to uh, build up their own forces uh, out of the northeast around Kharkiv, and uh, the counteroffensive came from there. As a result, that part of the front was fairly thinly defended by the Russians, uh, mainly uh, Donetsk uh, militia people who weren't particularly well-trained, weren't particularly well-equipped, uh, and the Ukrainians broke through, um, and quite significantly too. Russian state media had it that uh, the Russian armed forces were engaged in redeployment, uh, but uh, it, it looked like a pretty disorderly retreat, particularly since they they left a lot of kit behind. Um, and the, the meme doing the rounds now is that the biggest donor of military equipment to Ukraine is the Russian armed forces. So there's that part of it. Um, the other part of it was good intelligence uh, as to where uh, Russian forces were. Uh, partly the United States and NATO will have helped with that, um, but partly also partisans on the ground in Ukraine, um, occupied areas of Ukraine, communicating with the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, and third, of course, is is the equipment that they've received from the West, uh, not just the HIMARS, uh, multiple uh, launch rocket system, which has allowed them to target Russian ammo dumps uh, and supplies, um, leaving them effectively, you know, without enough uh, uh, ammunition to uh, to fight back. Um, but also, you know, the uh, tanks that the Poles have given them, armoured fighting vehicles from Australia, Bushmasters and so forth. So putting it all together, um, it's, uh, it's partly external reasons, partly internal reasons reasons and partly good tactics that have uh, have led to this uh, this breakthrough for the Ukrainians. Right, right. And and were you surprised by this? And do you think it represents a, a significant shift in the nature of the one, the potential outcome? Or are you trying to be more cautious about what this actually represents for Ukrainians' armed forces? Well, I mean, on the first question, um, the, the Russian armed forces have proven themselves over the course of seven months to actually be not very good. Um, not very good because they're inflexible in terms of uh, doctrine. They can't pivot to challenges and surprises and adapt. Um, they can't do uh, joint operations very well at all, or if at all. Um, their equipment is often uh, substandard. The morale is very poor. Um, and uh, so they haven't been, been doing very well at all. What they do do well is... Um, basically uh, massed artillery duels um, or um, in, as in the case in Chechnya, for instance, um, use of artillery just by Russia to grind the enemy into submission. I think it's probably too early to tell uh, whether or not this becomes ultimately decisive for Ukraine. It can be, but when you have an opposing force that, you know, the morale is really bad, 
um, the kit's no good, then it can cause panic and fear and the whole line collapses. Uh, but I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. Uh, already we're seeing the Ukrainian advance slow down, and that's normal and logical because they have to secure the cities and towns that they've captured, particularly some important uh, road links and rail links as well, especially around the town, the city of Itzium. Um, but more than that, there's still a sizable Russian force there. And Putin has uh, called up another 137,000 to go into the Ukrainian meat grinder. So I rather suspect that uh, what Putin wants to do is to shift this conflict back to that sort of grinding war of attrition, using artillery more than anything else. And that buys him some time and it puts pressure on the Ukrainians. And at the same time, it puts pressure on the West and tests its strategic patience. And with regard to uh, the Russian response to this in terms of their propaganda and news, are they portraying that this is a particular failure or success for Russia or Ukraine? Like what, what exactly are they saying about these counteroffensives? Yeah, well, um, domestically, um, up until the Ukrainian counteroffensive, counter this was being sold as uh, a great triumph, a, a huge success for the Russian armed forces. And of, uh, of course, you had people like Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, you know, saying that our war aims remain unchanged, and that's largely regime change in Kiev, so get rid of Zelensky, uh, and also to establish a sort of Crimean corridor. So from the Donbass, um, Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, and then control of the Ukrainian territory along the seafront, which would deny Ukraine access to the Black Sea. Uh, now, that looks a long way off, um, thanks to that Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, and so state media in Russia has been uh, promoting the line that um, this is all because Ukraine is in league with NATO, and it's not just NATO uh, kit, but also NATO personnel that are actively fighting, so that Russia is engaged in a global war uh, against NATO, and Ukraine is, is just the sort of geopolitical locus of it. It's also the case that there has been some criticism of Putin. We've seen uh, a number of deputies from the St. Petersburg region and also from Moscow, uh, the St. Petersburg deputies calling for Putin to be tried for treason um, and the ones from Moscow merely saying he should step down, which is, you know, some interesting notes of dissent within Russia. Um, it's a country where dissent does happen, but you have to be very careful when you do it. Uh, so the fact that this is, has happened with people who have some degree of political influence is is quite, in a way, surprising. And it'd be interesting to see how uh, how deeply that goes. There are others on talk shows in Russia who have said that this war is an absolute failure, um, that uh, we need to get out. But by and large, the dominant criticism of, of Putin through propaganda, you know, and, and state media channels has been from the hardcore nationalists. Uh, and they're the ones that are saying Russia didn't go hard enough uh, and it didn't go hard enough early enough uh, and needs to do things like, you know, target the Ukrainian power grid, target dams, you know, target more civilian infrastructure to send a message to Kiev. And that may, in fact, be the Kremlin floating a trial balloon about, well, would this kind of thing be politically uh, saleable within Russia? So that that's how, how Russian propaganda has pivoted. Uh, from triumph to setbacks, but, uh, you know, um, setbacks that perhaps are unfortunately only able to be reversed if Russia escalates the conflict. And you recently, uh, you had a conversation, the conversation article you referenced, there was an article which mentioned the the RT editor-in-chief, uh, the head of a uh, Russian propaganda 
she uh, quoted earlier in February that either we win in Ukraine or World War III begins. Do you think that that's now starting to become a real possibility or that that's lingering on, on Putin's mind? I know you wrote further about what he could do with regard to advancing and making this worse. Yeah, that's Margarita Simonian, who um, <laughs> a colleague of mine refers to as uh, the Kremlin's chief gargoyle. Um, she's she's called for all sorts of things like, you know, Russia to uh, bring about a global famine um, and starve the world to death uh, in order for it to get what it wants. Um, she's certainly not backward in coming forward when she comes to, to putting out extreme views. Look, I think a global war is, uh, or a war even against NATO is quite unlikely uh, for the simple reason that although at the moment Putin has escalation options, um, those options are not necessarily drawing NATO into the conflict. And if he does draw into the NATO into the conflict, then conventionally he will lose very quickly. And he has no real pathway left, but, you know, escalating to tactical and then strategic nuclear weapons. And we might say that, you know, Putin is crazy, that he's mad, he's unhinged. Uh, but ultimately, let's face it, Putin is a very wealthy man. And he surrounds himself with other wealthy, normally men as well. Um, and uh, the one thing that that wealthy individuals tend to be attached to uh, is life and their money, being able to enjoy it. Uh, so I'm not necessarily convinced that Putin is prepared to go all the way when it comes to this notion of a sort of global war on NATO. Yes. And uh, just with regard to other tools that Russia might be using, like propaganda, at the start of the war, cyber attacks were, were touted as a, as a very significant possibility that it could really compromise Ukraine. But as through the course of the war, it's kind of been seen and that hasn't been the case. So firstly, what has been the impact of cyber attacks from Russia against Ukraine? But more importantly, how damaging could they be if they were to be used effectively? How, how much damage could be done to Ukraine? Um, well, cyber, there's two schools of thought on this, of course, and one is that cyber, offensive cyber is a weapon of mass discomfort rather than a weapon of mass destruction, that you can turn off the lights, that you can cause all sorts of mayhem with road grids and so forth, but ultimately it's not something that's going to cause an enormous amount of, uh, of hassle for a developed country at least. Um, the other school of thought is that cyber weapons uh, are fundamentally uh, almost kinetic weapons because, of course, if you can uh, shut down a power grid for a sizable amount of time, especially during the winter in Europe, um, and uh, you know, doing things like turning off life support machines in hospital, then people die. It has real effects. Now, as to to the sort of cyber attacks that Russia has used, um, it, there is a question that a lot of experts in the field have been sort of mulling over, you know, why not more cyber and why not more effective cyber from Russia? And I think the reason for that is partly due to the fact that the Ukrainians, since having their uh, own power grid hacked uh, in 2015, I think it was, uh, by the Russians quite effectively, uh, have put a lot of money and resources into hardening their infrastructure. So that's one part. Um, the other part is that uh, in many respects, the Ukrainians have been using other means such as Elon Musk's Starlink system on the battlefield, which makes it harder to, uh, to, to launch concerted cyber attacks against. So those two things together, I think, suggest that cyber has not been a particularly effective weapon for the Russians and that it may not be an effective weapon moving forward unless, of course, you team cyber with actual physical acts of sabotage. 
So you can turn off the lights with a cyber attack, but to keep them off for a sustained period of time, you need to do, cause some physical damage to infrastructure. And that's certainly not something I would rule out that Russia would use both sabotage as well as cyber attack in concert against Ukraine, but also perhaps potentially against um, you know, other, other places, uh, even NATO members, uh, given that that sort of skirts underneath the official notion of an act of war and is kind of in the grey zone in the notion of, uh, you know, grey zone or hybrid operations. And another, uh, say, political and economic weapon that Russia has been using, perhaps uh, instead of focusing directly on the cyber attacks, is they've suspended, they've caused this essentially a partly an energy crisis in European countries by suspending Nord Stream 1. Now, it's not necessarily the case that all of the, these countries, say Germany, are out of gas now, but for the future, it's looking very uncertain. How are these European countries going to deal with this? Because a lot of them rely directly on Russia for a substantial amount of gas and considering that a lot of countries are heading into winter over there. Yeah, it's uh, the big question if you're in Germany, you know, Angela Merkel's legacy of, you know, thinking that she could, you know, play the Russians by uh, changing their behaviour, modifying it through trade, this notion of Wandel durch Handel is starting to look increasingly uh, short-sighted and not particularly strategically sensible. The Germans have managed to get to something like 82% of capacity uh, in stores for gas, which is a good thing. It's surprising that they've been able to to lay their hands on that much. The problem is Germany goes through its stores of gas, you know, uh, quite significantly and needs topping up throughout the course of a winter. So on the one hand, it's a very good wake-up call for those countries that you know thought that gas with uh, gas deals and oil deals with Russia weren't going to have any strategic consequences, because in the future they're going to have to seek alternative supply. It's quite clear that European mono- uh, the monopolies that or near monopolies that Russia had in terms of gas and to an extent oil over some European countries isn't going to continue. The critical thing, of course, is how they ride it out in the meantime. Can they source more gas from the Middle East? Can they, uh, in fact, have the infrastructure to deliver that gas through LNG uh, tankers and through ports? Um, And it's going to mean a lot more need for European cooperation and collaboration. So, for instance, uh, the Poles have recently upgraded their LNG terminals in Gdansk to meet more demand, and you'd anticipate that those would be very much brought into play with demands for gas throughout the winter, you know, uh, continuing. You could basically expect that a lot of the Russian dependent economies or energy dependent economies will drop their gas uh, usage by about 10 to 15%, uh, but they're still going to need to find more from somewhere. Otherwise, it's going to be a fairly cold winter for them. And I think if you're Vladimir Putin, you're banking on the Germans in particular, blinking, getting cold feet, quite literally, and uh, and sort of toning down their support, support for Ukraine and fragment the West that way. Whether that happens, we'll have to wait and see. Do you think that that was an intelligence failure on the part of Russia to, to not anticipate that European countries would be able to figure this out instead of ceasing their support for Ukraine? Look, um, partly, uh, a lot of Western elites thought that you know that was going to happen anyway. That 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 Russia was going to win very quickly. So um, I think where Russian intelligence failed the most was the idea that Ukrainians would greet their forces with flowers rather than Molotov cocktails. 
Um, certainly, I think the FSB bought into the narrative that Putin himself was pushing, that uh, Russians and Ukrainians are the one people, they share a common history, common identity, and that they've been forced apart by the evil West, um, and that they're being controlled by a bunch of, you know, Ukro-fascists who will splinter very quickly, and the rest of the good Ukrainians will, will want to uh, support Russia. That's where I think the real intelligence failure happened. Even Western security agencies were saying to Volodymyr Zelensky prior to the conflict and when it had just started, when he was asking for weapons, uh, they were saying, well, you're not going to be here in a week or two weeks. You know, this is going to happen very, very quickly. So why would you, we send you anything? Um, so I think it's, it's testament really to the Ukrainians' ability to resist the Russians, the poor quality of the Russian armed forces, and I, I suppose probably also the um, uh, the personal agency of Zelensky himself and a very effective messaging campaign to the West that have sort of shook NATO, particularly EU countries, out of their stupor with regard to you know, sort of just let's kick the Russia can down the road and instead look say, look, now's the time to you know unite much more strongly and to start questioning some of those fundamentals that we thought um, that we had in place, like we could rely on Russian gas uh, and buy it off, and that Putin would be an irritant, but not much more. Um, so this is, you know, causing a fundamental reevaluation. I think of the you know, the strategic basis of European security, particularly from the West European, East European NATO side. And moving on to post-war uh, reconstruction, what do you see are the greatest challenges for this? Do, do you think that there's a chance countries might not be willing to, to foot a bill that could potentially cost $1 trillion, that was according to an estimation of the, of the European Investment Bank? Uh, yeah, I think it'll cost more than $1 trillion, and I'm not sure anyone is going to be able to pay. Um, the US can't afford it, the EU can't afford it, um, and the Ukrainians themselves can't afford it. So this is a reconstruction process that when the war finally ends, and it's probably too soon to be talking about reconstruction bill, the reconstruction bill is is going to be the work of decades for the Ukrainian state. So in a sense, you know, you could argue that Putin has partly achieved his objectives, if part of those objectives were to turn Ukraine into a fairly weak actor, uh, if not one on the brink of state failure, and one where its civilian infrastructure and its industry is effectively bombed back to the Stone Age, prompting it to, you know, turn inward and uh, and need to focus on reconstruction. So that that's going to take a very very long time. Uh, it's going to cost an awful lot of money, um, and I think it's it's going to be two generations or you know, the next generation of Ukrainians which will be the ones who actually start getting back to the point where they were before the Russians invaded. And more recently, there was a, a meeting recently with President Xi uh, and Putin. Why did they have this meeting and what do you think uh, Xi's perspective on this war is? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it happened on the sidelines of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. And there were some, some really interesting signals that the Chinese gave. And if you look at the readout, particularly the Chinese readout of the bilateral between Xi and Putin, it's quite clear that it is telegraphing Beijing's annoyance with Moscow. It was obvious in the, the optics of it where Putin actually, you know, spoke into the microphone and appeared, you know, very unlike Putin. He was very meek, uh, almost timid, in fact, much different to the sort of belligerent bellicose character that we're used to seeing. And I think that speaks to, you know, the depth of the fact that China is frustrated that it's uh, no limits partner 
and that's referring to the no limits agreement that china and russia signed in well early february this year just prior to the invasion of ukraine china is very irritated that its number one partner in terms of power the russian federation is is doing the one thing that china says it doesn't do and that is to intervene militarily in the affairs of sovereign states uh, not just in crimea in 2013 and 2014 but of course in 2022 on a much grander scale now, Chinese irritation with Russia has been sort of slightly visible since the start of con- the conflict, and the Chinese have basically been trying to play both ends against the middle by rhetorically supporting Russia and saying we understand Russia has legitimate security concerns from NATO expansion as a, as a sort of pretext to, to these hostilities. But in terms of practice, they haven't been doing anything at all to assist Vladimir Putin to win, not providing any material, military equipment whatsoever, uh, in spite of the fact that the Russians have been running dry on artillery shells and have been forced to source them from the North Koreans. In addition, the Chinese suspended AIIB investment projects in both Ukraine and Russia because of the conflict, and that sends a much more potent message to Moscow than it does to Kiev, because of course Kiev is a war zone, or Ukraine's a war zone, and Russia isn't. So, you know, those notes of hints of discontent have been around for a fair bit. Uh, what we just saw overnight is, uh, is, is in fact, a dressing down of Vladimir Putin and one that was, in fact, quite humiliating. Uh, the Chinese readout of the, uh, the meeting refers very pointedly right at the end to that China and Russia will need to work together on non-interference. And if you, you couple that to Chinese comments earlier in the SCO meeting, which were all about safeguarding uh, the, the sovereignty and upholding the sovereignty of Kazakhstan, I think that's a really clear message from Beijing that it's not going to tolerate Vladimir Putin doing whatever he likes, particularly within areas that China perceives as its own backyard, and, and Central Asia is one of those. So the other takeaway from that is that realistically, this is a sort of changing of the guard when it comes to Central Asian security affairs. It's not going to necessarily be Russia provides the security and China provides the investment. And in fact, that's been tilting the balance in China's favor for a considerable period. This is effectively a Chinese challenge to Russian hegemony, primacy, call it what you like, within the Central Asian space. So in that respect, that's really quite significant. And finally, what do you see are the broader lessons from this war so far regarding warfare and intelligence and, and any other things that you might have picked up from with regard to how countries can can see and do better? Um, I think there's a lesson, partly a lesson in terms of our overestimation of the quality of Russia's armed forces and the fact that, well, we didn't factor in just how corruption had managed to spread throughout the system. It's always better to err on the side of caution, I think. But the fact that, you know, we bought into the narrative that Russia has the second best conventional military in the world is obviously demonstrably untrue. So, I mean, that that's a kind of lesson, I think, but one that's very difficult to get right, because the alternative or, you know, the problematic alternative is that you can underestimate the capabilities of your adversary. And in the case of the Russian armed forces, of course, if you look at its nuclear weapons, you know, its nukes work just fine. So we should be careful in, in not drawing too much of a lesson from that. The bigger lesson, I think, from this conflict, particularly from the, the perspective of NATO, EU, the broader West, however you want to conceptualise it, is that if you want to deter a country, you have to put some skin in the game. 
And by that, I mean that deterrence doesn't work against Russia, probably won't work against China, using the same types of tools that would deter a Western country. Western countries would see the threat of economic sanctions, crippling economic sanctions as being something that would be absolutely terrible, very difficult to endure, cause domestic instability, turn publics against governments with obvious implications at the ballot box. Um, but, you know, for Russia and China, they don't face that kind of domestic political scenario or situation. So the things that deter us won't necessarily deter Russia and won't necessarily deter China. Uh, and in fact, in case of in the case of the way you know the the NATO looked at and uh, diplomatically reacted to the Russian troop buildup, it's almost the case that it was perceived, I think, as weakness by the Russian Federation. Certainly, Joe Biden saying to the Russians, "There are no circumstances under which NATO troops would fight against Russia," was taken, I think, by as, as a green light. Go ahead. And then Putin's other bet was, well, the West is fragile, the West is sclerotic and weak and might slap some sanctions on me. But ultimately, if I win quickly, this will all be over in 12 months or so and we'll be back to business as usual. And uh, so he miscalculated there quite badly. But that miscalculation only came about because the Ukrainians did well, because the Russians weren't as good as we thought they were. So I think that does have, have lessons for, for the way we try and deter others, particularly, you know, Russia, that it respects the language of strength. And if you want to deter Russia, then instead of putting sanctions on it, you put 60,000 troops on the border. Because let's face it, Russia is not about to get into a shooting war with NATO because it realizes it would lose that war. For all the bluff and bluster and so on, I think that Russia is deterred by a sizable military force. And of course, the Russian response to that is to rattle a nuclear saber and talk up the risks of nuclear war. Um, yeah, you know, uh, possibly, but no one's ever tested Putin's escalation ladder. And there are plenty of steps that can be taken, I think, before we get to sort of global thermonuclear war. So yeah, that's the lesson in terms of deterrence, be bolder, make sure that you know, you actually have some skin in the game, except that deterrence comes with risk. We're a very risk averse type of culture, or we've certainly developed one. And unfortunately, military strategy in this respect, it means, uh, you know, taking some risks and ultimately don't telegraph your position. It may well be that the West didn't want to and won't fight at all against Russian forces, but there's no need to announce that. Strategic ambiguity is something that is, uh, you know, has worked well, particularly over another uh, issue that's closer to home, the Taiwan Straits crisis, or just the issue of Taiwan. And uh, I think it's something that, that Western leaders in particular need to rediscover. Thank you very much, Matthew, for your critical insights on this issue. We really appreciate it. Thank you for giving us your time. Mute. Thanks very much, Hugh. Look forward to it. Look forward to uh, hearing how it goes. Thank you very much. Cheers. 